Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on the Nerdcast, we go behind the scenes at the White House and what the failed nomination of Ronnie Jackson to lead the VA says about how the White House works and doesn't. Plus, midterms, we are going to jump into a implosion going on in the Missouri Republican Party right now and how that benefits one of the most vulnerable Democrats running for re-election in the Senate. And we're also going to zoom out and give you a little state of play in the entire 2018 Senate map right now. A reminder to our listeners to subscribe to the Nerdcast, rate us, and write a review, and stay tuned for the end of the show for a contribution from one of the Nerdcast's biggest fans. One more note before we begin, we're taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday, April 26th, so it's all up to date as of then. Okay, let's get started. I want to welcome our guests. We have White House reporter Eliana Johnson here. Eliana, great to see you. Good to see you, Daddy. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> and Politico senior editor Charlie Matessian, thank you for being here. Hey, Scott. Time for our first data point. Five in four, the Department of Veterans Affairs has had five directors in the last four years. Three of them interim, two of them confirmed. That's a lot of turmoil, and the turmoil continues. That's thanks to the controversy this week about the president's pick to lead the VA, Ronnie Jackson, who's the president's pick no longer. He dropped out this morning after a swirl of questions about his qualifications for the job and also uh, some allegations about behavior during his time as the White House physician. Here's another data point for you. No senator has actually ever voted against a VA secretary nominee before, not one. Jackson was obviously set to break that streak in a big way. So we'll hear a little bit more about why he's out. So big picture to start. Eliana, who is Ronnie Jackson and why did he withdraw his name this morning? Ronnie Jackson, as many of our nerds, I think, our well-credentialed nerds, I think, know by now, uh, has been the White House physician for uh, not only President Trump, but for Presidents Obama and George W. Bush before him. But Really, I think there was bipartisan agreement in Washington had absolutely no business being nominated to run the Department of Veterans Affairs, which is um, a, a 330 or 350,000 person department beset by some of the thorniest bureaucratic problems. Um, so it, the problems that have come out of his nominations are really what you get when you nominate somebody because you have personal chemistry with them. Essentially, President Trump uh, named Admiral Jackson, he, he's a Navy officer, named him because he liked him and saw him uh, go out and, and defend him. In, he, he did do this great press conference uh, a couple of months ago with reporters where he took every single question, said the president was a beautiful physical specimen. And uh, President <laughs> Trump really liked him. But he was uh, really widely liked and admired, not only in the Trump White House, it, but in the Obama White House. But I don't really think uh, any lawmaker thought he was a good pick to run the Department of Veterans Affairs. Um, the Trump administration um, did no vetting. I don't think you can really fault them for that because uh, the president 
president did not give them any chance to do any any vetting. Oh, that's so, interesting. Uh, yes, yeah, so it was the Democrats on the uh, Senate's Veterans Affairs Committee led by John Tester who actually did the vetting. They found some troubling things. Um, I, I, they also exposed a culture of casual use of am, uh, the sleep sleeping pill Ambien and the alertness drug Provigil among not only White House aides, but Pentagon and military officials. Uh, so this all came crashing and burning today, and he withdrew his nomination. I think that brings us uh, up to the present. It's it's like one of the yeah distilling Trump's management style and all the trouble that can sometimes come from that down into one neatly packaged and ultimately withdrawn cabinet nomination, right, Charlie? Yeah, I mean, the, but the management style is chaos, and it, it's just reflective of, uh, a, to me, a sheer disrespect for the traditional norms of governance. And one of those norms is uh, vetting nominees, and there was no vetting at all. You know, and Eliana, I think, makes a good point that you can't blame his staff because they were uh, blindsided by this. But I mean, what does that what does that say about uh, the president that this was the least uh, vetted agency had ever? I mean, essentially, he was picked because of. And, and not to disparage the guy. I mean, he, he's clearly an accomplished guy, well-liked by all the White House uh, White Houses that he served before, but n- in no way qualified to, to run this agency. And he was picked on the basis of one highly entertaining spin uh, on the White House podium to talk about the president's health and the fact that he went over well and he said everything the president wanted him to say, including about his uh, height and weight which I think we haven't talked about yet, the Gerther movement that, that <laughs> sprouted <laughs> from that appearance. Because oh I, I, I would include myself as among a the Gerther. Gerthers. I'm, a, yeah. I'm definitely a Gerther. Do you really believe that's how much he weighs? Yeah, nobody thinks Trump weighs 239 pounds. Please, so. I mean, 239 pounds? No, I'm not even sure he's as tall as he says he is. Well, you, th- so well, you think he's thing. slipping a pack of cards into the into the heel of his shoes? or uh, I'm, I'm just going to say that how many people were in the room when they – what's that doohickey that they – you know, where they measure your height and they – I have no idea what it's called. You know, whatever that thing is. Like how many people witnessed that? I want to see documents. I, I just don't believe he's that tall. Uh, for the record, Dr. Jackson says Trump is 6'3", 239 pounds. Okay. Okay. So here's another thing that I think is interesting about the Jackson uh, crash and burn nomination is that all the questions that were raised uh, were about his performance as a White House doctor or White House physician – but he went back to being White House physician today. Sarah Sanders released a statement saying that he's back on the job. So the question to me is, will he stay in that job? And he got glowing reviews um, from the Obama administration, from President Obama himself. So I think it raises questions about the Obama administration's vetting and about the George W. Bush administration's vetting. That being said, we don't know if any of this was true. Was it just a leak campaign against him? I, I think there are a lot of unanswered questions but, about this. Eliana, can you tell us a little bit about what exactly exactly uh, was being said about him. And I know there were a lot of rumors flying around, but then Senate Democrats put out a, a dossier, essentially, of a whole bunch of accusations against Jackson uh, yesterday, which seems to have really kind of pushed this yeah. over the edge. Yeah. So uh, Senate Democrats put out a two-page document, and they said that 23 people who had worked with uh, Ronnie Jackson came forward and that the accusations against him fell into three buckets. The first was uh, casual doling out of uh, medications including Ambien and Provigil, uh, sleeping and alertness drugs without doing uh, with a sort of intake and uh, I don't know, really know what what you would call it, but like asking questions about somebody's medical history before giving out uh, these drugs. Um, 
one accusation was that he had prescribed himself something, which is a big no-no for doctors. Um, the other bucket of accusations was about work culture, where people said they felt intimidated and silenced. And the third was about drinking on the job, uh, accusation that he had crashed. Uh, was it a Secret Service vehicle? I saw just a government a vehicle. A government vehicle um, that he had been found passed out um, when he was, quote, holding the bag, which means on call for uh, to, tr- to treat the president at any point and that his colleagues had to go in and that they didn't disturb the passed out Dr. Jackson um, and that he had uh, and simply gone in and gotten whatever medicines they needed to treat the president. That being said, uh, I had talked to several, both Obama administration and Trump administration officials who said they'd never seen him during on the job. They'd never even seen him in a bar. So I do think that, uh, as I said before, that there are uh, sort of suspicious things and unanswered an- questions about this uh, nomination. For me, the big, one of the unanswered questions is um, the role of John Tester in, in all of this. And I mean, this is a, an accomplished uh, doctor. There was nothing in the public record that suggested he had acted dishonorably or unethically before. And whatever you might think of, you know, that press conference for for President Trump or Jackson as a choice, did he deserve this kind of treatment? I mean, it, it felt to me like there was something wrong, uh, and and I think it could rebound against Tester and Democrats in in general. The idea that they went so public with this in his role as the ranking member of the Veterans Affairs yeah, Committee I, I mean, that he that he released this this, this document. This was trickled out over a number of days. Uh, this is highly damaging to his reputation. It strikes me that this would have been handled differently in the past, maybe in a uh, less polarized era. And I'm I'm actually surprised that Tester took such a high profile role in doing it. It's a good point. It is surprising that this uh, document was was rolled out without a full investigation, kind of going, getting the chance to to run through. I mean, I, we're seeing more and more of this. I guess there, the, this longtime norm in in government of not commenting until. Um, a, a process or an investigation. I'm thinking particularly about like criminal investigations and the Department of Justice or the FBI right now, um, not commenting until it's it's through. But again, you know, this was a similar kind of situation where there was obviously something to be investigated. But the the idea that all of the facts had already been gathered doesn't seem quite quite right here. And they were deeply damaging facts. They're questioning every, you know, the way his honor, questioning his ethics. I mean, these weren't just penny ante things about did he pay his taxes on time, right. or you know, the things that uh, sank other nominees at, at, at various points. Like, did you have uh, a nanny you didn't pay taxes, or or you didn't know the immigration status of a nanny or something? I mean, this this was very different. What, yeah, what? I, I think he was put in a terrible position by the president and the White House, and and Trump said as much when he said... Here's a man who has just been an extraordinary person. His family, extraordinary success, great doctor, great everything, and he has to listen to the abuse that he has to... I wouldn't, if I were him, actually, in many ways, I'd love to be him. But the fact is, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. What does he need it for? Essentially, there were dozens of accusations being lobbed against him, and the custom for nominees is that you don't speak until you're hearing. So he... I think essentially felt that he couldn't respond to these and he was saying that he wanted to respond to them in a hearing but now he's in the position of having had all these allegations hurled against him and he hasn't been able to respond publicly which I think is it's a pretty lonely and terrible position to be in. Eliana, let me let me ask a question. So the at the at the end of this saga the VA does not 
still does not have, you know, they don't have a nominee. They don't have a permanent confirmed uh, secretary right now. Um, and you alluded to this as you were introducing all this. Obviously, there were a lot of questions that were raised about Jackson's conduct. But the initial uh, kind of round of criticism of him was that as a, you know, a physician, yes, a physician to the president, but just as, as someone who'd been practicing as a physician for years, he was not necessarily qualified to uh, oversee this sprawling department that's had a lot of trouble over the years. So in terms of real world effect here, what does this mean going forward uh, for the VA, for uh, reform efforts? I, is there any hint of when uh, the administration is going to put forward a new nominee and, and who that might be and what they might do? You know, everything that I'm hearing from the White House is that they really didn't have a plan B for this nomination. It wasn't clear who they were going to put up uh, when when Trump fired Shulkin, who was the VA secretary before Ronnie Jackson's name was put up. And so what veterans groups are imploring the White House is to please uh, – take their time selecting the next VA secretary and to do proper vetting before uh, the president announces a name. But I don't think that they had a plan B for this scenario. It sounds like they didn't really have a plan A, right? right? Jackson kind of came out of nowhere. Exactly, exactly. That'll be interesting. It seems like the, you know, we're we're destined to have just at least one confirmation uh, battle pending before the Senate until the end of time um, at, at this point. So, we will keep an eye out for what's coming next on the VA story. But uh, Eliana, thank you for guiding us through uh, all that on the Ronnie Jackson saga. My pleasure. And Charlie, you're going to stick around for segment number two, right? I'm here. All right. Our second data point is coming right up. But first, this quick break. All right. On to our second data point. We are talking 2018 midterms, 2018 Senate races, and our number for this segment is 19, as in 19 points. That was Donald Trump's margin of victory in 2016 in Missouri, which is why the Democratic senator from Missouri, Claire McCaskill, is thought to be one of the most vulnerable Democrats running for re-election this year. Actually, she's been in the Senate for 12 years, and she's pretty much been the most vulnerable or one of the most vulnerable Democrats in the Senate for most of those 12 years. Anyway, That said, Missouri Republicans are in a drama that's crazy even by 2018 standards, and McCaskill may end up being a big beneficiary as she uh, heads to the ballot again in November. So my colleague Daniel Strauss is here in the studio with us. He dug into the story this week, and he's going to talk us through this crazy political situation. Daniel, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me again. All right. So let's run through the characters here quickly. Tell us a little bit about – we've got – Josh Claire, Claire McCaskill, the senator. We've got Josh Hawley, her presumptive Republican opponent, and then Eric Greitens, the new Republican governor of Missouri. Just give us a little primer on each of them. So we have uh, Senator McCaskill, like you said, one of the most endangered uh, Democrats in the country. And Republicans were really optimistic going into the cycle that uh, their the Missouri's Attorney General Josh Hawley would be able to one, would be the one to finally unseat her. But enter Governor Eric Greitens, also a Republican, a new member of the Missouri Republican Party, and uh, someone who is caught up in not one but two scandals. One related to him obtaining an email list from running a nonprofit for veterans prior to running for governor. And then using that to fundraise for his 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 gubernatorial campaign, which is a big charity no-no. Right. And then the other one for uh, related to an affair he had and accusations that he forced a sexual encounter with his mistress. Yes. All right. Uh, and obviously, big scandal there. And he's been indicted twice. He's been indicted once regarding the affair, although not not 
related to a forced sexual encounter. He's been indicted for allegedly taking a non-consensual nude photograph of the woman. And then she uh, she says blackmailing her, although that's not included in the uh, in the charge. And then there's a separate charge related to the, the charity donor list. Um, so he's been indicted twice. Hawley and a lot of other Republicans have called on him to resign. He says he's not going anywhere. How does this play into the Senate race? I mean, for Hawley, as the top uh, legal official in Missouri, he has there's an expectation that he prosecute and aggressively pursue the accusations against Greitens. It complicates things because uh, these are two members of the same party, and Hawley has a Senate race against uh, Senator McCaskill, who seems to continue to get lucky breaks. Charlie, tell us a little bit about that. Why, of all the places in uh, in the country, it, it the the fact that the Missouri Republican Party would somehow end up in turmoil as McCaskill's up for reelection again had all of us kind of shaking our heads in the office. And and we had uh, the the former chairman of the Missouri Republican Party calling her a lucky duck. Uh, to Daniel. Yeah, I mean, th- there's some truth to this idea of uh, her good fortune or, or, or Senator McCaskill's luck. I mean, she had she has this drama going on right now. She had the uh, the psychodrama in 2012 with Todd Akin, who made the inappropriate uh, remarks regarding rape, and that certainly destroyed his chances of, of, of winning against her. The other piece of luck that she's had that doesn't get mentioned a lot is the years she's run. She's run in great Democratic years. So she ran in 2006, which was a Democratic wave year. She ran in 2012 with the president on the ticket and goosing uh, turnout. So uh, there's truth to the idea that she's a lucky deck, I guess. But also people don't give her credit for this. She's been running statewide in a state that has been trending red and she has been winning. And that is no small accomplishment, even with all this uh, Republican drama in the back ground. But also, uh, if you look at her numbers, they're really impressive. And I don't think she she gets enough credit for it. She ran well ahead of President Obama in 2012. And she even won more raw votes than Mitt Romney, who won the state in 2012. And that is a huge accomplishment. So she is somebody who has been able to build her own distinctive brand, in addition to being uh, really lucky. You know, whether this year she can continue to do that, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, 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 it's a really tough environment. Uh, Missouri is not getting any bluehorn. It's not moving. It's not moving leftward. It's moving rightward. That's for sure. She gets a lot of credit in 2012 for her campaign sort of trying to help and steer Republicans toward Aiken as their nominee. And a lot of Democrats think of her as a sort of mastermind uh, in in terms of campaigning. But this time around, it, none of this is really of her sort of nudging or accord, although Democrats are very eager to continue to call attention to Hawley. Yeah. And so what we've seen so far is that uh, – so Hawley is among the people who's called on Greitens to resign. Greitens says he's not going anywhere. They have been exchanging a war of words uh, – actually exchanging a war of restraining orders uh, at one point um, with uh, the governor saying that because the attorney general had called on him to resign, he couldn't uh, be trusted to carry out an impartial investigation into him and asking, asking a judge for a restraining order against uh, another statewide elected official. Um, how how are the Democrats trying to take advantage of this, Daniel? Every single, I mean, I've I I haven't seen so many uh, uh, different Democratic national and local groups 
all descend so quickly on the same Senate race this cycle. Uh, the Democratic Attorneys General Association, the Democratic Governors Association, which is actually full of staffers who ran the campaign of Greitens' Democratic opponent in 2012 and, or 2016, and they are very eager to take revenge. Uh, the, DS- the, the, the argument they're making is that is that Hawley was kind of looking the other way right. at Greitens for a long time. Right. The argument is that Hawley is overly political and used his office to further his goal of becoming a United States senator and beating Senator McCaskill. Oh, my God. Imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Charlie – Zoom us out a little here. This, this is turning into one of the most fascinating and bizarre Senate races of 2018. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously, I think Republicans would rather not be having uh, the trouble that they're currently having within their own party and in that state. That said, uh, like you said, Missouri is not getting any bluer. And it's part of this broader map that, you know, despite the political environment, uh, is still look looks difficult for for Democrats in a whole bunch of different ways. One of one of the, I think, our most cited stats on the Nerdcast about just how how uniquely difficult this Senate map is for Democrats. Yeah, it, I mean, it's really uh, it's hard to overstate just how difficult the map is for Democrats and how grim that map is. And it's sim- it's simply a matter of the the Senate math right now. Uh, Democrats are defending nearly three times as many seats as Republicans. Uh, so they begin in a defensive posture and then making matters worse. You've got 10 Democrats up for re-election this year in states that Donald Trump won. You know, Meanwhile, at best, there are four Republican seats at play. And so the math just doesn't work for Democrats. And what's really interesting is typically like in a wave year. Uh, I mean, the Senate flips fairly regularly. It's not really a big deal when Senate flips control. It's a really big deal when the House flips because it happens so less frequently. So typically over history, what you see is that uh, the Senate flips, but the House doesn't always flip. But when the House flips, the Senate always goes with it. And you can look back, you know, nearly a century and you'll see this is virtually true all the time. This might be one of the rare occasions where the House will flip, at least in my estimation, I think that the House is gone right now. You know, when I, when I look at it, you know, if I had to bet on it right now, I'd say the House is going to flip. But I'm not convinced that the Senate will flip with it, even in a Democratic wave, because of this, you know, nearly impossible math. I want to. I want to. I, I think that's right. And in Missouri, the the thing to remember also is that the Democratic Party is pretty pretty exhausted. There aren't any. There's no real bench beyond Senator McCaskill there for even even uh, a gubernatorial candidate if Greitens makes it to reelection. And so, and so she, you know, she's kind of pulling the organization along for, right, uh, for 2018. Right. She's sort of buoying it. And the other thing to keep in mind here with uh, Missouri right now is that Greitens and Holly don't like each other. Mm-hmm. They, they've disliked each other for a long time prior to these scandals. Potentially making Greitens less likely to heed the call of a fellow uh, high elected official yeah. to maybe step aside for the good of the, the party in the state. Yeah. And look, <laughs> a lot like. of – right. I mean, Holly represents a lot of the elected Republican Party infrastructure in the state. But there are a lot of Republicans or new Republicans who voted for Greitens for the first time and came into the Missouri Republican Party and they still like him. And so that could be an obstacle for Holly. Yeah. We're trying to win them back. The more, that's really interesting. The more Holly sort of attacks Greitens, the more he pisses off uh, Republican voters. He needs to be ener- to energize his campaign, both in the primary and the general election. That's really interesting. So, Charlie, I want to I wanna, uh, flip back to something you were just saying about this forbidding math. I mean, talk us through exactly where – so, first of all, I, th- I think probably in order for Democrats to have any shot – 
to keep the Senate. We talked about those 10 Trump states, five of which are Trump double-digit states. They probably need to win at least nine of those, right? Uh, maybe even all 10 in order in order to have any shot of getting to, to uh, 51 seats. Yeah, I mean, but another way to look at it is, uh, I mean, the way the way I look at it and try and keep the math right in my head is I, I'm just looking at four seats. Okay, uh, which and ones? That, the four Republican seats, because that's really, Repu- there are only really four Republican seats that are in play, because again, most of the Republican seats that are up this year, and there aren't that many, most of them are in very, very red states. Of those places, here are the ones that Democrats have a viable chance of beating, winning. Arizona, Nevada, and okay, so those two are great opportunities for them. That will get them to the majority. Then Tennessee, which is uh, you know a longer shot, and then Texas, which is an even longer shot. So I look at those four states. Of those four, Democrats must take two. Arizona and Nevada, you know, th- those are doable. But Tennessee. I, I don't know. That's a stretch. The only reason we're talking about Tennessee, which is a very red state, a state that's becoming much more conservative, only reason we're talking about it is because there are signs that um, uh, Marshall Blackburn is a less than optimal nominee, and they might give that away to a very strong Democratic nominee. The, the in the, in Cruz, the former governor. In it's... the former governor, Phil, Phil Bredesen. But again, what, what people often overlook is how dem, how – uh, hard to the right, Tennessee has broken since Bredesen was the Democratic governor. So that's, a, to me, a long shot. Then there's Texas, which is an even bigger long shot. Cruz, clearly vulnerable. Uh, but I think there's a whole lot of hyperventilation over one poll uh, and over uh, Beto O'Rourke's uh, you know, digital fundraising, You know, which I, I don't mean to disparage his, his chances, but I think Democrats have this weird uh, blind spot when it comes to Texas. They just they will not acknowledge the reality, and they, all they know are whispers of of rumors and stories coming out of Texas that Texas is going blue. Well, it, it might be, but it's not happening right now. So it, that's a tough one. So I look at those four all the time because that's all that matters. Because even if Democrats run the table and protect every single seat that they're that they're defending in red states, they still have to take two of the four that I just listed. I want to make one more quick point about the Senate before we go out here. I think I've spent a lot of time studying the the evolution of the House battleground map this summer. And you you just don't need to spend as much time studying the Senate because it's, you know, it's fixed states and we all know what they are and there are fewer of them. But when we've been thinking through the House, you know, we're looking a lot at these kind of districts that maybe some of them were reliably Republican for years, but then we saw, um, you know, there are some that, that Clinton won in 2016 that are held by Republicans, and those are obvious targets. But then there are some that you know Trump won by a lot less than Republican nominees passed. And we're starting to get to a point where, okay, maybe this used to be a double-digit Republican district, but Trump only won by single digits. And you know maybe with the right nominee, uh, this House district could be online. Well, that also describes the state of Texas, which Mitt Romney and tons of Republicans before him won by double digits and Trump only won by nine over Clinton in 2016, which I think is just an interesting extra point here. Now, obviously, Ted Cruz has won it <laughs> big in the past, too. And Ted Cruz and Trump obviously fought a lot in the past. He's more of a, um, well, he's not a traditional Republican in a lot of ways, but he, he on a lot of policy questions, Cruz bears more resemblance to the traditional Republicans of the past than Trump does. But I just, I wonder, I wonder how long Texas is going to remain interesting for. You know, it could be one of those things like, oh, maybe we expect this to fade. And then the polling still stays kind of close in the spring and maybe through the summer. And then what ha- what happens if we arrive at the fall and we're still watching this? I think it's really a fascinating possibility. It is because there's so many variables in, in Texas. And there are also so many variables that are changing uh, fairly rapidly. And what, what I mean by that is, okay, so we know, we know that uh, – 
Texas is moving leftward. But there are also other things that could change in the intervening decade uh, that could really alter uh, the math there. For example, Texas is just growing so fast. You know, what if that, uh, what if that migration mix changes in, in any way? Uh, what if, uh, what if uh, Latino voting participation rates remain as low as they are right now? What if they suddenly ramp up? I mean, all of that is up in the air and will play a huge role in determining sort of the, acceler- the accelerated pace of what happens in Texas. And, I, and we just don't know. I mean, oftentimes there are snapbacks. There are, uh, you know, states uh, ebb and flow in, in, in their partisan identification, uh, depending on, on, on forces that oftentimes you couldn't e- even envision five or 10 years before. So I'm always, you know, a little skeptical about Texas, even though, I mean, I think broadly speaking, it's obvious to all of us what's happening there. To me, what I'm, I'm more interested in the, 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 the Trump-related realignments or questions surrounding what realignments may come out of this. So, for example, uh, like re- regional realignments, like um, the Mississippi Valley, River Valley, you know, almost from Minnesota all the way down, uh, all of these places were the last bastion of rural Democrats. Democrats lost almost all the rural seats, you know, over the last two decades, except in Minnesota, Iowa, uh, Western Wisconsin, places like that. But Trump finally sort of cracked that nut. And I'm wondering if that was sort of an aberration or whether that's going to hold. And then the other realignment related issue to me is, you know, obviously you guys know this is my obsession that I wrote about last summer is the suburbs. I mean, when you see the pace of change in these formerly Republican suburbs, I mean, that changes everything. If the Republicans no longer have the suburbs as part of their coalition, uh, you know, that changes that changes the entire game. That's a huge thing that we're going to be watching uh, for the next six months as this year kind of marches along toward the election. Daniel, thank you so much for kicking off that conversation about uh, the 2018 Senate map. Thanks for having me here. Charlie, thank you as always. Scott, thank you so much for having me. I had a wonderful time, especially with Daniel Strauss. I had a wonderful time as well. Okay, as promised, we are going to turn things over briefly to one Nerdcast superfan, Kate Mancuso of Lake Hopakong, New Jersey. I really hope I was pronouncing that one right. Is going to help us out with the credits this week. Kate, take it away. Nerdcast is produced by Bridget Mulcahy and Michaela Rodriguez with help this week from Adrian Hurst. Dave Shaw is the executive producer and their illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, rate the show and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thank you, Kate. Listeners, we found Kate because she emailed in to say she was a fan. If you are a fan of the Nerdcast who wants to read the credits, let us know. Shoot us an email at nerdcast at politico.com. That is it from us. Thank you so much for listening. We will talk to you again next week.